What is going on, you guys? It is good to be back. You are watching King Pilled. I am Matt. The green guy over there is Cooper. And today we have ourselves a very special guest. This is a guy I have been wanting to talk to uh, for a long time. I've been following him for a very long time. Uh, in fact, I think I was trying to think today when the first time was that uh, the name Oren McIntyre came across my timeline. And it was from the distributist. I'd gotten, I'd discovered the distributist through his Mitch's Moldbug video, and then he retweeted this guy who was making YouTube content. And at the time, it was a relatively small, one of these niche, you know, little internet creators making videos on, on uh, rather esoteric philosophy and politics and everything. Very well produced. And uh, I was like, hey, this is an interesting guy. So I followed him. And I think, I think you had maybe two or 300 followers on Twitter at that time. Yeah. Um, I, I think we may have been been about the same size account when we started following each other yeah yes yeah and uh you know we've we've both grown since then but you have man you you have shot absolutely into the stratosphere it is very good to see the success that you're having and uh when i was looking at the getting ready for the the i was looking at our, our analytics on youtube and was thinking okay how much like what, what is my audience's relationship to to oren mcintyre and it turns out that oren mcintyre is the number two watched show of our listeners number one would be counterflow with buck johnson um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so Oren, it's great to have you here, man. Yeah. Great to be here, man. Uh, I, so I guess you, I, we don't really need you to, to, to introduce yourself to the audience. Basically everyone already kind of knows what you're about, but, um, give, give just kind of a brief, like a brief overview of, uh, how you got to be here from, from, I don't know, five years ago or whatever it was that you were a 200, 300 subscriber account. Yeah. Thanks. No, it's, it's been kind of a crazy ride. I, you know, studied politics in college. I ended up teaching for a while because there's not a lot of jobs in politics, though I did end up working in Republican politics for a few years. Uh, and then I became a political reporter and I worked as, as a local journalist, uh, mainly doing uh, politics and crime, covering those beats for, for a couple different local newspapers until I became a senior staff writer. And, you know, 2020 hits and you're like, oh, wow nothing makes sense. None of the stuff I learned, none of the things I knew about politics work. And I had been a talk radio guy my whole life. And so I was like, okay, well, if everything I learned from talk radio and, and college and stuff didn't really work, then what is true? Like what, what is actually the way that politics works? And so I started watching guys like Dave, the distributist. I started falling down, you know, the rabbit hole of kind of neo-reactionary thought, Italian elite theory, looking at all these other political theorists who I'd never heard of, even though I'd got a degree in politics. And, uh, you know, I started just describing it because I was like, well, I'm a journalist. I can explain to people, you know, what, what I'm learning as I'm learning this. And as I did so, I started making YouTube videos and tweeting things out. And here we are. <laughs> and now everyone on the Internet is tapping signs. That's right. <laughs> sign, sign tapping army. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, so if this is your guys' first time listening to watching King Pilled, then uh, thank you. Welcome. Uh, please do us a favor and, and subscribe to the channel. Or if you're listening on a, on a podcast, subscribe to us and uh, and like this video. Uh, we uh, we would love to be able to talk to you guys. And it sounds like we already share a lot in common. So um, today, the subject we wanted to discuss was uh, we kind of played around with a few different angles to take on this. Essentially. And so I'll kind of, I guess I'll kind of describe the, the, the backdrop of what we're, um, the thing we're trying to explore, which is uh, like, like what has happened with NRX? It seems like a couple of years ago, there was a, a coalescing community on the internet. It sort of came from a few different fringes. 
Um, there was the uh, Yarvin branch was a pretty big one. You have Nick Land was, was kind of a big name. And then it overlapped with like the post-libertarian moment that started happening, which of course is all on the, on the heels of, uh, of MAGA becoming a, a, a legitimate political force. And it seemed like there was something kind of coalescing around this sort of set, I- set of ideas that people kind of broadly would refer to as NRX. So I, I'm just using the term NRX just because it's one that people kind of understand they're, they're connected to. But um, since then, over the last few years, especially in the last, I don't know, nine to 12 months, it sort of feels like a lot of that energy has dissipated. Not that, not that there's no more energy, but that that energy has gone in different directions. It's kind of gone in different places as people are sort of teasing out these strings of thought. Um, so we want to get your thoughts on this phenomenon. Uh, we asked our audience to give us a, uh, any questions they wanted us to ask you, and then we kind of put them in a coherent order here. So Cooper um, has the list of questions that, uh, uh, to kind of structure the conversation as we go along. But before we have him dive into those, do you have any preliminary thoughts based on what I just said? Uh, yeah, I would say that it's kind of what you would expect. Neo-reactionary thought was never a club. It was never like a, a cohesive worldview. A lot of people wanted it to be. You know, they, they kept saying, oh, well, this is this is the NRX, you know, circle. This is the brand. This is the thing. And it's like, no, it's really just a set of tools to mm. look at politics, to analyze power. And so it's coming in different waves. Of course, Moldbug's been writing for a very long uh, time. Curtis was writing... Back in like 2008, 2007 is when he started. I didn't even start reading him until 2019, 2020. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a late comer to this whole thing comparatively. So th- there had been whole communities that kind of rose up and there was a lot of response to what he was doing on qualified reservations. And then land kind of comes in with a whole different branch while also responding to what he's doing on qualified reservations. And then Yarvin just doesn't write for a very long time and it all goes dormant and then it comes back again. Uh, with kind of gray mirror and things and that that's when you start seeing some momentum build do you hear that some of the people inside the trump white house are reading this kind of stuff and talking about it and now yarvin's everywhere he was just on charlie kirk yesterday he's been on tucker carlson right oh really yeah 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 and so there's this there's, there's this kind of so there's this kind of uh weird moment where you know this guy who was a, extremely online it was a very you know esoteric community of of kind of uh, disparate factions has kind of waxed and waned over the years. And now there's this moment where a lot of this thought is entering the mainstream. Uh, you know, I, of course I'm talking about it, but there are, there are many other people who are interviewing Yarvin interested in what he's doing. He's talking to kind of major players and that kind of thing. And so I think it feels like it's dissipated only because there's no longer this like very online identity built around nrx because really that it never was an online identity it was simply a way to look at politics and power and now you've got it breaking into the mainstream and and so it doesn't really have this kind of niche online community feel quite the way it used to i think that actually is is um it's in, yeah it's interesting the way that you're you're framing that because it's it's almost like it hasn't uh it, it wasn't a community as much as it was like a laboratory and yes. it was like a, a laboratory where people met and they started tinkering on ideas and those ideas sort of t- took them in different directions. But before we go too far down that rabbit hole, I know our first question here has to do with, uh, there's a, we had a couple of people in the audience who don't know what NRX is. They're kind of fresh to this. So um, go ahead and hit, hit us with the questions, Cooper. Yeah, we've got some brand new recovering libs who are uh, <laughs> new on the on the scene. So yeah, We're first question was just... Submission. That's right, that's right. Um, first question. 
brief summary slash definition of NRX for the newbies. I, I guess you kind of just gave that. Yeah. Well, it, well, neo-reactionary theory, like the Clifton's version, is really just that it's, it's a very enlightenment skeptical, democracy skeptical way of real politics. It, it's borrowing very heavily from uh, the Machiavellian school of Italian elite theory, people like Alfredo Pareto and Gaetano Mosca, that kind of developed theories attached to that. And it, it's drawing on those to kind of take a look and say, okay, we have an idea of the way power is supposed to work. We know here's the constitution, here's the bill of rights, here are the three branches of the government. I learned all this stuff in civics class, but whenever I watch TV, it's very clear that like none of that stop, stuff operates. So when I look at politics, rather than believing, okay, democracy balances all these things and you know, popular sovereignty provides regulation on the government, these kind of things, let's look at the way power actually is applied and, and then we can understand better the way that, that the mechanisms work. And so I would say that that's kind of the, the simplest way to understand neo-reactionary theory is just, okay, we're, we're not quite buying into the story of liberal democracy, so let's look at the way power actually operates. And then from that, we can understand a little more about the human condition and the way that politics actually operates in the real world. You want to jump in there, Matt? Got anything you want to say? No. no. Okay. Question number two, what are the most consequential ways NRX thought has and or has not entered the mainstream political discourse? I would say the most consequential way is probably the concept of the cathedral. That's probably the term that's been mainstream the most. You've seen guys like Greg Gutfeld and uh, Ben Dominich use it on Fox News. So, you know, it's really entered into the common parlance now. I don't know if all these people necessarily have a great grasp on, on, on some of the theory behind it, but that's how all theory works. It's always going to go from like high resolution to low resolution when it gets kind of to the masses. But I think uh, you'll see this also in the terminology of the deep state, the idea that the influence of the permanent bureaucracy uh, that kind of continues to operate, whether or not democracy has any real input into the governance functioning from one election to the to the next. And I think the, the cathedral kind of grasps onto that. Also, the idea that the media, academia, these other centers of power and influence and informa information manipulation are kind of key. And I think that that's just become more obvious in general. Like when Yarvin wrote about this back in 2008, that was pretty cutting edge stuff. Today, it's like, well, yeah, obviously, like we've got the Twitter files. We know this happens, right? So so that, that, that's become a little more obvious than it used to be, but th that that uh, has become, I think, a, a mainstream idea. I think we're also seeing probably, uh, especially the last couple of days, uh, much, much to my surprise, uh, but but uh, positively so, uh, questioning of things like the civil rights revolution, the architecture that underlies that legally, uh, whether or not the, the Constitution is actually the thing being applied or whether things like the civil rights uh, uh, law are able to kind of override it and, and create a secondary governmental system. I think these are, are the kind of common NRX critiques of the way power works that are now entering the mainstream on a regular basis. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, an element here that kind of red pill, red pill is another one. Brain. Yes, red pill. Yeah, yeah. yeah, red pill. Obviously, that, yeah, that's a uh, Curtis Yarvin. Now that's in in common use by pretty much everybody. Yeah, it basically means nothing at this point. Mm -hmm. 
you even had um, recently Vivek Ramaswamy, as I started listening to some of the videos that he's talking about, uh, in one of the videos, he used the, the term, uh, the professional managerial class. Yes. And, and I was like, hmm, three years ago, you wouldn't have heard prominent um, political figures or people who are trying to traffic in that universe using terminology like this. So in a sense, it's almost like, it, it seems like there's a, at first there was a lag between the, our little corners of the internet and sort of mainstream thought. But that lag seems to be getting shorter and shorter, where the, the, a lot of the NRX observations are um, very, they're, so, they're so true that they can't help but begin to map themselves onto reality in the, in the broader populace, which I think, I think a, a, a white-pilled look at this might be that that means that from this little corner of the internet, we're, we can begin to influence the, the broader conversation and actually the direction, the trajectory that things go. It seems like powerful people have their ears cocked down in our general direction. Yeah, Vivek mentioned the need to address the administrative state and the professional managerial class on a regular basis. So he's mm -hmm. obviously familiar with good chunks of this critique. And you can tell that the, just the fact that like anons are now regularly being interacted with by very large, very mainstream accounts they they feel mm -hmm. the need to answer them they feel the need to respond you can't you know they're not just sitting letting them you know uh fight uh, uh, under their blue check anymore they, they feel the need to answer them directly you're also seeing anons write for much larger publications i mean claremont review regularly publishes anons at this point and that's a that's a, a very influential conservative think tank work that that uh it, it, that that's a huge so the, these ideas are definitely in circulation for the first time in a very long time, the right is actually interacting with its vanguard, which is something the left did all the time and gave it an incredible amount of power and new blood and new ideas. The right has been terrified to do that for a very long time, but we're seeing, I think, a sea change in that, and that's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Question number three, I think, or <laughs> to B, to A. Has NRX developed any type of praxis that you are uh, you find persuasive or actionable? Yeah, this is always the huge problem uh, yeah. with NRX. Has always been its its ability to convert that analysis into practical application. I think you're seeing guys like Moldbug try to do this more. Yarvin has been attempting to, I think explain to people the way that this would actually work if the United States was to transfer power to something closer to his like CEO monarch, what would that transition look like? Uh, he's been more explicit in, in kind of the ways that, that, that the mechanisms could, could work for that. I know you're seeing more practical application at, at the very least when it comes to taking things like the managerial class and the administrative state seriously uh, we're now seeing people who have serious influence like Chris Rufo talk about the necessity of repealing large sections of civil rights law. Uh, you're seeing uh, guys inside, uh, who, you know, who were inside the Trump administration talk about the necessity of removing bureaucracies, uh, the ability to fire, uh, you know, uh, long appointed bureaucrats, these kind of things. I wouldn't say that it's a level of praxis that most people would be happy about yet. It's still something that's developing uh, it's still something that's desperately needed at this point, uh, but it's much further along than it was just a few years ago. And it is actually seeing some application 
in the real world, which again is something you couldn't have imagined just four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. One interesting dive that we've been doing here uh, for the last couple of weeks or so is looking at the influence of the so-called PayPal mafia and a lot of the influential figures within that group of people mm-hmm. and looking at the different projects that they're invested in all over the place and kind of drawing connections between them and starting to see, it seems like there's kind of some type of a mobilization um, happening on some level. And it's, it's kind of tough to tell by, by its nature. It's it, these sorts of things are, are, are designed like an effective, someone who has a clear understanding of the political process, the way a true near reactionary or whatever that label, someone like that by necessity knows that in order to get things done within the, the, um, the existing system, you have to look like you're part of the system. Yes. So by its nature, these things are going to be difficult to tease out and find. You're going to have to kind of draw a lot of webs of connections and stuff. So we've been working on that, trying to figure out what the different connections are here. And one interesting thought like, is that you've got uh, Naib Bukele down in, in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And there are people part of the PayPal mafia. There are people who are very close to what he's doing. And there are also people within the PayPal mafia who clearly have a very good understanding of uh, Girardian mimetic theory, and they understand the power of modeling. So it seems like we're starting to see this dynamic. Um, you're getting it a little bit with Malay in uh, Argentina, and you're starting to see like each of these different, I got to credit a buddy of mine, uh, uh, Jason with the two bit podcast. He's the first one who really pointed this pattern out to me. He said, it's almost like you're kind of seeing a build a Caesar happening (laughs) where you're going to assemble just different parts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you have like each of these guys in this, in, in these other countries, these right wing leaders, they don't have to be a comprehensive Caesar. They just have to, they just have to implement a particular Caesarian, uh, uh, application of something. And then it creates a model for that. So like Malay has slashed the, the, the federal workforce drastically and made drastic moves with the housing market. And he's, he wouldn't even have to do more than that. He could just do that and he would already serve as an effective model. So it seems like these are ways that it, this is like, I'm seeing actions that seem to reflect an NRX sort of disposition or someone who's come through the NRX laboratory seeing the way that they would work. A thousand little Lee Kuan Yews. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. Um, it is interesting, of course, to also remember that part of this would, of course, have to happen outside. In fact, a large part of this would have to, ha- have to happen outside of the government apparatus, right? That's a big right. part of the formula would be CEOs acting outside of that. And we can see, of course, the moves that guys like Musk are making. Uh, you know, he, he knows he's not getting to Mars without, you know, uh, wrenching away a good chunk of the government apparatus. And he also knows that Twitter is, is for better or for worse, a central component of kind of the, the American ruling elite. And so that move is probably greater than anything we've seen in the American government when it comes to actually implementation of something that would you know be a positive step of praxis for the NRX uh, kind, of, kind of sphere. So uh, that, that's important to keep in mind, too. These, these, you're right to point out that these different uh, you know, actors in these different areas could be building different parts of... Uh, kind of the CEO monarch, but we could also see that from the CEO side in the business world as well. Mm-hmm. Another another one of those uh, connections too that you could see is uh, uh, with the, so there's Starlink, which is 
the um you know, like like X or Twitter is like the 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 social square. This is the the default social square where all conversation happens, all policy is proposed, everything moves forward through through Twitter. Um, so in that sense, you could almost say that Twitter is as valuable or more valuable even than Google or Apple. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a central cog in the system. Uh, that's very much seems like what Starlink is becoming. I remember when Musk. Uh, I don't remember which, whether it was NATO or the U.S. or Ukraine or whomever, one, one of them, said, basically, give us access to your satellites so we can conduct military operations in this area. And he gave him the finger and right. was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's that's a significant deal. Having a CEO that can just flip the bird to the national security apparatus, that signifies a tremendous amount of power. So you see, and then there's uh, Palantir may be the best example of this, which is... Uh, it, it almost has become the intelligence community itself. Like it, it almost owns the intelligence community. So I see these sorts of moves aren't just being made. Like you said, this has to be done largely outside the system. And I'm noticing these sorts of moves that are being made are being done outside the system, but not just with any infrastructure, but with like absolutely foundational core civilizational infrastructure. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's the ability to become indispensable to elites that are obviously becoming more and more inept, right? Like they can't maintain the infrastructure of their societies. They can't operate these systems the way that these corporations can, the way that these CEOs can. And so they're becoming increasingly dependent on people who can just withdraw that support at a moment's notice. And that means that they're going to be able to have big influence in those areas. Mm -hmm. Question number three. Has NRX simply accepted the frame of their opponents slash found themselves trapped in a dialectic? Framing oneself as, quote, reactionary could implicitly concede the frame of whatever or whomever you're reacting to. What do you think? Yeah, that's obviously the case. Like, again, the thing to remember is that neo-reactionary theory was never like a movement. It was never a well-planned out, uh, you know, offensive when it comes to political action or anything like that. The name is haphazard at best, and most people don't run around referring to themselves as reactionaries. You know, it's it's a name given to you by your opponent, and you tend to want to oppose those whenever possible. Um, usually, I don't run around calling myself a neo-reactionary, right? Someone will say, right. oh, you, you, you know, you're connected to this line of theory. It's like, yeah, of course, you know, th- this is the line of theory that I followed to kind of where I am at. But I don't, I don't really address that as my political position for the exact reason you're pointing out. So... Yeah, it's 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 a terrible name, and that's the problem with a lot of these names. The dissident right is another terrible name. You know, these are all uh-huh. <laughs> all all kind of really awful labels at the moment. Um, you know, and, and so are we looking for a better one? Yes, should we use these? Probably not. Better look somewhere else. But for the moment, since this is a shorthand we have, we can go ahead and address it this way. Right wingers seem to inherently have like a marketing and branding problem. They just don't, yeah, for whatever for sure. reason, the, the the psychology overlaps aren't 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 huge there. But one thing I've thought I've I've spent a lot of time myself in sort of general startup community and around a lot of marketing and salespeople who are kind of not really they're not politics people. They're just kind of they're interested in business and finance and economics, but they're kind of like eh, whatever about electoral politics. And uh, there's I, I think that that our little circles would, would, would benefit a lot from incorporating a lot of their aesthetic. You don't even, you don't necessarily need to accept their worldview to embody their aesthetic, but that kind of, uh, uh, sort of like detached, um, just focused on my mission, 
um, but also having a deep understanding of how people think and 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 react to to things. You you know you would know that something like NRX or dissident right. If you lead with that, you're just you're you're framing yourself in a really terrible way. Um, but then we it's like we it's a hard for us to come up with what a better thing would be. But someone like an ostensible elite who could someone who could pass in elite uh, and in the, in the elite circles who could actually be able to get these sorts of things done. It would be specifically because they aren't quote NRX. Yeah. They don't. They don't trigger the immune system. They. They. They naturally are just. Um, they just seem like ordinary people. It's it, it for the same reason. You probably even if you're going to implement Machiavellian uh, political practices, you shouldn't go around calling your faction the Machiavellians, uh, despite <laughs> despite James Burnham's uh, title. Uh, same same thing is probably true here. But uh, we you know we got uh, disgraced propagandist. He's a marketing guy. We'll we'll. We'll charge him with the, whatever the new branding is. It's his job. We're, <laughs> yeah. we're turning it over to him. I, actually, that made me think something I was going to new scapegoat. Was, <laughs> yes. It, yeah. um, if James Burnham was alive today, which where would you place him? Where do you think, like, if he'd lived to this point, like, where would you, where would you, where do you think you would place him ideologically? Would he still be an establishment neocon? Where do you think he would have wound up? It's a really good question. I mean, yeah, he is. He was obviously as a Trotskyite. He was a neocon uh, when it came to you know the founding of National Review. Though it's clear that uh, you know he and Buckley didn't see eye to eye on a number of things. The thing about Burnham is really not to idealize his political vision so much as to recognize his ability to understand power. Right? Like I. I am not going to be following Antonio Gramsci's worldview, but he understood a really important part of what it meant to like control information and uh, institutions and what that would mean for like communists wanting to lead a revolution inside the United States. I don't like any of the implications of his, of his worldview, but he understood something about power. Same thing with people like Foucault. So you know, you, you don't James Burnham, I, where would he have landed? Would he have been a base trad guy? I, Probably not, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't understand that he he grasped power in a in a very particularly powerful way, and that makes him worth reading, even if that mean doesn't mean we would want to live in the world that he necessarily was was you know, working for at that time. Yeah, it made me wonder the question. It was like, was he a neocon because neoconservatism was the thing? Was like he recognized? Did he become? Did he become detached from um, political ideology sufficiently to where he could be like, okay, who's powerful right now? neocons all right look at me i'm a neocon and you know then would have just shifted with the times he understood i think uh, a dynamic of power that again guys like burton juvenile also understood that was power is going to continue to centralize and grow and i think burnham didn't think that there was a world in which kind of managerial bureaucracy wouldn't reign supreme and so he said well if that's going to be the reigning thing we should just have the best one and we should conquer the world with it and we did you know, but but maybe that isn't the best way to have a human organization. You know, maybe maybe that's not. And that's kind of the the problem with the value free assessment of politics. Right. It can tell you what works, but it doesn't tell you why you should want it to work or what it should work for. And I think Burnham, uh, like like Pareto before him, may have been too concerned with the pure mechanical nature of politics and not so much like what a good world looks like. And while I, I deploy his analysis when it's useful, I think it's always important. And this, you know, the danger is always 
to to strip the meaning and value out of something in the hopes that you know that that kind of compartmentalizing it and and describing it sufficiently will kind of bring you victory um it, it works for a while but as we've seen with a lot of modernity it will also strip out all the meaning of things and hollow you out and you may not want to live in the most efficient world if it's a world that strips you of all meaning and truth mm. Mm. speaking of pareto that uh, dovetails well into the next question but but first could you give for the newbies a brief description of the circulation of the elites Sure. Uh, Vilfredo Pareto had a concept called the circulation of elites, which was the idea that every elite is, um, we, you know, we're always ruled by elites. There's always a, a ruling class, but that elite is not static. It, it contains within it uh, many different, what he would call residues, many, many different temperaments uh, and, and skill sets that are necessary at different times. So a healthy elite is constantly circulating. You have a core elite there's a continuity of elite that gives you the civilizational continuity of a ruling class but you would be bringing new people in on a consistent basis to make sure that you never get stuck in one area so for instance uh you know there are people who are too analytical and there are people who are uh, kind of too martial and if you build up too many of one of those or the other if you only have warriors or you only have scribes then your ruling elite will be unbalanced. Uh, but when elites get old and they decay, they tend to select for only one or the other. They only want to be surrounded by people like themselves. So for instance, now we definitely have a bunch of weak intellectual kind of kind of uh, types that are ruling and they, they want to push out any of the more patriotic warrior types. And so that means that we're building up kind of a, a uh, alternative elite that is not allowed into the institutions. The most capable people are not allowed in because the current elite are only selecting for a particular ideology and a particular temperament. And that means that if we don't circulate our elites in a healthy and peaceful way, eventually we will force the circulation. Naturally, the dam will break, the water will rush in, and the river will overflow and things will change. And so, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the process we're probably looking at now, unfortunately. We've, we've walled off the capable, which means they're building up outside the institutions of power, and eventually they will desire to break through. Okay. That said, question number four. Given Pareto's description of the circulation of the elites, and given the current obviously degenerate state of our elite class, what characteristics should we be looking for in the rise of a new elite class? Are we seeing this begin to happen on any level? For sure. I think I think we're already seeing just the capable build up, right? Again, that's why you're getting counter elites like Elon who have to, you know, they kind of work in the system. Like we said, they, they need to play the game, but it's very clear that they're at odds with power and they're, uh, they're, they're accruing a large number of people. Uh, you know, guys like us wouldn't be, wouldn't have any audiences. They wouldn't be, people wouldn't be talking to us. If it wasn't for the fact that there's clearly a lot of capable people who are on the outside looking in and try to figure that out. The big question is going to be the, the really scary and interesting question is, does the type of elite change? Because right now we're all merchant intellectual elites, right? It's all about the information mm -hmm. economy. It's all about soft power. But that can't last forever. History shows us that's that's not how things work. And eventually the priest class or the merchant class rotates out and the warrior class 
comes in. And so the question is, does that change? I don't see that in the immediate future. I don't see a large amount of like highly skilled operatings, operators looking, you know, chomping at the bit to kind of, you know, sweep in and, and take power. In fact, if anything else, we're seeing the, the military hollowed out from the inside, you know, and so that that's probably unlikely, but that could happen. And if it does, of course, that's really when things will change in a significant way. One of the things that we've talked about here a lot recently is uh, some of the patterns that we see with the different generations and uh, looking at just based on you know, dates of birth, um, the boomer generation, the youngest of the boomer generation are, are coming up on retirement here within the next five to seven years. And part of the character, we've, we've kind of been reigned by the boomers, reigned over by the boomers for a really long time because we're, we're, we're forced to subscribe to the, the ideology of the regime that I've called naive boomer idealism. And it seems now that the, the, the millennials function is almost like a reflection of the boomers. And in the same way, Gen X seems to be reflected onto the Zoomers where they share a lot of generational commonalities, which including uh, uh, like rebellion and uh, deep appreciation of irony and uh, more, they're more, I guess, like scheming, conniving. They're kind of more- Punk rock. Toward very, yeah, punk rock. They're very much uh, uh, kind of the like independent, like get off my back sort of mentality. And given the way that the, the boomers uh, changed and, and morphed the economy and then built themselves up all these institutions that they camped themselves out at the top of, and locked out any people from coming up, the generations coming up behind them, as those people begin retiring or even dying off, especially given that life expectancy is probably going to continue to drop, then there's going to be some type of, of major cultural shift that corresponds with that, I think, as the essentially the mantle is being handed from the boomers to Gen X. And Gen X have waited a long time for that mantle. And there's been a lot of resentment and everything that's built up because of it. Our buddy Jason with the two bit podcast has been talking about the vengeful son archetype that follows on from the uh, devouring mother archetype. Um, at the same time, like you mentioned, like the gutting of the military. And it also seems as if we, we've had so much social disruption that in ordinary times, you would think someone's head would have rolled by now. That's kind of how the patterns have played out in the past. Yet it hasn't happened in part, I think, because people are able to roll digital heads now. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the internet has become like a pressure release valve for actual physical conflict. And part of this, I think, would be tied up with this generation that as, as Gen X is coming into power and all the succeeding generations behind them all grew up on the internet, it's, we become a lot more naturally given over toward spending time on the internet, having, out, having things out on the internet. Do you think that that's a pattern that may, that can continue? The using the internet as sort of the pressure release valve um, to to minimize the the opportunities for violent conflict in meat space. Yeah, I mean, so we're, we're there's a really interesting dynamic that we don't really talk a lot about, but but it's very real. Uh, we're running out of people who have ever been in a fist fight. Like that's a real mm -hmm. generational decline that's occurring, right? Like how many people? in you know the in the last you know the last couple generations have actually had physical conflict know what that means like not just military but i mean of any kind you know act actually gotten into a dust up because like their honor was besmirched and they felt the need to come to blows that number is getting vanishingly small right and and this is of course why we see the rise of kind of the theater kidocracy right nobody's been put in a, in a 
in a uh, in a locker for a very long time because that that kind of conflict is just not allowed and the consequences are extremely serious if you engage in it. And so there's a very real question of if our generations would even know how to do this uh, at this point. And the weird shift that's going to occur is, of course, you would expect, like you said, the baby boomers due to their kind of just demographic supremacy have wielded incredible power over the United States and its mechanisms for a very long time. But they're also probably the last generation that actually got into fistfights. And so when they're gone, uh, you know, who does that get handed off to in increasingly more theater kid dominated generations? And also we're going to see that the the shift, like the boom, baby boomers and maybe Gen X are going to be the last generations uh, that were like majority, like, you know, heritage Americans, people born in the United States. The demographics are going to shift to a lot of people who aren't connected to these dynamics, who didn't have this kind of generational continuity. And I really don't know what that means. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very weird moment where a lot of factions of people who are going to be heavily involved and influential in politics aren't going to have a lot of connection to the last couple generations and aren't going to know what any of that stuff means to them. Hmm. This brings up an interesting, um, an interesting thought related to this conversation that again, two bit podcast, we've been, we've been discussing this. He's starting to build out a framework around the idea of, uh, he said that the idea was triggered for him when he was watching that video of the the woman in the Congo walking across the like stretchy bamboo bridge, yeah. carrying stuff on her, and she falls in the water and everything. And and the way that the way the video was presented was, look how the West has failed this poor woman. Look at how, and and he was and he's like, no, like there are there are are cultures that build bridges and there are cultures that lay bamboo reeds across the thing because they don't, it's, there's no time pre there's there's extremely high time preference so like not three months out of the year it's the rainy season and so we lay some bamboo reeds across but the rest of the time it's just a little stream that we can walk across and we can repurpose those things elsewhere so he's made this distinction between what he's calling like a like a primal society which is one of those that's very high time preference and then a civilization a civilizational society which would be defined as a primal society that functioned as a tribe building capital together. So, that, and this ties into a Nick Land thought where he's talked about how competence breeds capital. There was a couple of quotes here that I, I pulled to support the idea. Um, one of them, he said, as soon as you start doing anything competently, it starts turning into capital because all it takes for something to turn into capital is that you need some kind of positive return on something. If you're doing something that is resourcing itself with a small surplus, so therefore it is becoming stronger, it is reinforcing itself, whatever it might be. If you're doing something like that, you are already abstractly doing capital. So part of, part of the, the, the theory we're kind of pondering here is the idea that we, we basically don't live in a civilization anymore. The past few generations have consumed all of the seed corn of the, the future generations to the point where we we don't even have the, 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 the possible components of a high trust society, which would be what a, a civilization is. That's a, a tribe. And we're, we're basically, we've been reduced to kind of like a jungle that, ha that happens to have prettier rocks. Our, our rocks are just more technologically advanced, but we're, we're now in a, in a primal state with a bunch of warring tribes competing for dominance and competing for, for using up resources and long build up here to the question. The question is, 
do you do you do you see the the viability of that thought and what do you think about um the opportunities that we have in front of us for beginning to build capital together to actually found a new civilization yeah i mean so there's a lot of places you can go with that i mean i guess the question is has capital separated itself from has it deterritorialized itself to the extent where it can no longer benefit specific civilizations right and that's that's part of what we're talking about is that the the civilization is no longer sustained by you know the capital is no longer oriented to sustaining the civilization it's, it's escaped that and it's melting down those boundaries and those borders and it's operating in its own interest and leaving those civilizations behind and so the question is like can you recapture that can you reorient it into uh you know preferring a particular civilization or is this a process that has largely escaped the ability of humans to manage and it's going to continue until it kind of, you know, just goes wherever land wants it to go? And the answer is, for land, I think it is that it's it's kind of beyond at this point, right? That the ability of civilizations to kind of control this has, has ended. Uh, the, the, the decision space has collapsed. Uh, things have accelerated too quickly and uh, they're no longer able to control the speed at which development kind of closes that cybernetic feedback loop. And so, you know, can, can you capture these things? I mean, as, as someone who is kind of pro team human, yeah, I hope so. Uh, I, I hope that land is kind of wrong about that and that you can kind of recapture this and turn it towards a, you know, it's service towards a particular group of people, which would allow you, allow you to kind of restore civilization in a certain way. Uh, but but I don't know if he's wrong that that this will be a cycle that kind of needs to burn itself out and that the only way is kind of through this process. Um, it certainly I hope that that you're right and that your goals would would be one that that is doable. Um, but I, I, I would I would uh, humble myself a bit and say that I'm, I'm not sure that my wishes are the ones that are going to win out here. <laughs> I think probably where where we would part ways with land because I think I, I I I held off on actually reading land for a long time just because I every every person I listened to that talked about it described how like how much of a chore it was yeah. and and so I just was like uh and then I heard him on a podcast and I was like oh this guy is not he isn't even remotely what I envisioned he's th this guy is an absolute crackpot but he's he's a brilliant crackpot yeah and. Uh, and so then when I, was, I basically was in the right frame of mind to actually listen and, 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 and understand what he was saying. And, and then I realized that he's actually, the, the mechanism he's describing, I think, is, is uh, extremely prescient. The, the idea of, the, of capital as, a, as kind of a self-automating force that begins using people more than people use it. I think where I would part ways with him, it probably comes down to being a Christian and the 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 Christian, what, what Christian anthropology would say about what humans are with respect to the rest of the world. And so I think what he's perceiving as, you know, this kind of the singularity point or like the point at which capitalism or the, the point at which capital detaches itself or deterritorializes itself entirely from its host population. I think that that is, um, it's equivalent to the extinction of that population as a meaningful uh, unit. So, and then if you have no, no humans, then what even is reality? What, 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 are you, what are you describing when you talk about a reality with no humans in it, given the Christian view of what, it, what being human means? So I think his, 
he's either describing the end of the world or the end of reality as we know it. I, I think or, that's a that's a correct way to understand it. Yes. Yes. Or he's just describing the end of this process, but it's mm. not going to terminate humans because it wouldn't it wouldn't it either is possible or it isn't. So it's just another you know, betting on the end of the world isn't really going to get you anywhere because if it actually happens, you're going to have bigger problems. So might as well assume it's not the end of the world and then and then operate from there. So I think that's where I where I wouldn't share his his doomer perspective on it. What do you what do you think? Where, where do you where would you land on that? I don't think he'd see it as a doomer perspective uh, so much. It's yes, just a re right. reorientation of goals. Uh, but I'm I'm with you that, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of pro uh protein human i'm i'm pro you know finding a way to make sure that this stuff is serving human interests and not the other way around uh i just i fear that nick land is right about too many things um <laughs> a, a, an uncomfortable number of things i it doesn't mean i have to like it but uh again from from the very real from the realist attempt to kind of you know just be honest about uh, about what i see uh it seems he seems more right than wrong, no matter how unsettling that might be. <laughs> I, I, one of the thoughts that occurred to me, if I was like, I was like, okay, so I think that he's right. I think I, if I, if I occupy his worldview and I look at what he's, he's looking at, then I think he's, he's right. He's seeing it clearly. And most other people who occupy his worldview aren't seeing what, what he's saying they should be seeing, but not occupying his worldview I was like, okay, well, where can I fit in? What what is this this process he's describing? What am I what am I seeing here? And competence being a virtue, doing things competently, it's not a virtue in and of itself, but doing good things competently is. So competence can't itself be a self-destructing force for humanity within a Christian worldview. So what is this dynamic he's seeing where capital is um, like, what it is is capital is upregulating up humanity. Yeah. Capital is the thing that we use to, 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 to test our, our code, to look for bugs in our code. So, so one of the things, and you know, uh, I guess take this for what it's worth, but one of the things that's kind of essential to this process is dehumanization, right? Like capital mm -hmm. becomes more efficient as we become less human. And so uh, the the trick really is like, can are you are you looking simply for the most efficient market, the one that's so efficient it escapes its need for humans, right? Or are you understanding that there is a critical and valuable part of humanity that is non-rational, that is inefficient, and that needs to be served no matter what, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I think that that's, that's really the question in play. I, I would say this, if you're interested in Land's thought, but you would like a more pro-human version of it, um, you can look at Alexander Dugan's fourth political theory. Uh, mm -hmm. Dugan has a lot of problems. Uh, he hates the West a lot. He wants you dead, <laughs> to be clear. However, uh, Dugan is, a, um, is an interesting thinker. He uh, is very good at synthesizing a lot of postmodern thought and post-liberal thought and bringing it together in interesting ways. And he also sees, I think, the accelerationist wave. He describes it in his own way, but it's very similar, I think, to many of the things that Land sees. But for Dugan, uh, this is a way to dismantle modernity uh, but once modernity is dismantled, being an Orthodox Christian, he believes that uh, 
allows for the re-enchantment of the world. And so for him, reaching this point of dismantled modernity does not create capital escape so much as it creates a coll the collapse of this hyper-rational world in a way that allows the return of the strong gods, the return of the divine, the return of enchantment. And so that's the way I would see, I think probably um, a, a positive, you still have to go through a terrible time. It's, the only way out is still through, but this would be a return to a humanity that is uh, in touch with things, the metaphysical in a way it can, it cannot currently understand it. One of my favorite lines from that book is, um, you know, modernity is Nietzsche and the death of God, but post-modernity is the death of who? Because the people have forgotten even even who would have died and the significance of that figure. And while that's a terrifying moment to realize that none of these people even know what God is, that gives them the opportunity to once again approach him in an honest way, the way a child would approach him. Mm. Because they no longer have that deep cynicism and that deep mm. uh, uh, re, uh, kind of resentment that's attached to the modern skeptical process. So mm. that's... That, that's a long way around to say, you know, th there is there is another way to see this that I think is probably more aligned with our worldview. Uh, but that, too, comes from a guy with a terrifying philosophy. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. It makes more sense to me now why someone I was on. Uh, uh, are you familiar with Jay Burden? Yes. On YouTube. Yeah, I was on his show a couple of days ago and, and someone in his comments called me a subversive Duganist. And I was like, oh, that's that's very odd. I've never read Dugan. I have no idea what Dugan thinks. So <laughs> little did you know. <laughs> yeah. I guess he was right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting that uh um I, I think Land, I actually is the one I might have heard mention this. I think he attributed it to someone else, but I I don't remember who. Um, that basically what Capital is doing is it's actually revealing what it is to be a human. It's a and which which interestingly, uh, there's a word that means revealing. It's apocalypse. Something that's <laughs> apocalyptic is is a revelation. So it's mm -hmm. like capital is. This is this is why I was thinking of capital as sort of like a. It's like a debug code so, that runs on humanity because it's sloughing away everything about us that is not human until what is actually human becomes very clear. It, it stands out and you can't not see it. Is that synonymous with the end of the world? perhaps you know the world is going to end at some point um you know i guess maybe the question is is that the is it, are we as far along in the process as we think or are we just at another threshold going into a new iteration of the process where we you know this we've we've gone through the liberalism era or what is it the the like the liberal interregnum or something like that that, that moldbug called it we've gone through that era and we're transitioning into a new one i guess maybe i guess i have to read dugan to, to find out yeah like i said you'll good luck i had to I had to uh, get that book on PDF because you can't buy it anywhere. I read it twice, and now it's removed from the archive I read it from. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. best of luck attempting to find it. But if you do, I think you'll find some interesting things there. Well, we got one more question. This is my own question, and then maybe we'll get to Super Chats. Um, and I'll preface by saying that, you know, the, the NRX thought the thinkers, the, the Zeta-Anons. I like it. However, why are all these NRX dweebs like so insufferable? 
Is it just like a carryover from their former libertarian days? What do you think it is? Yeah, that's that's a good point. The libertarian heritage. Yeah, that's the the dangerous, dangerous combination. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot when when you're building a space online and you have no uh, interaction with each other. The only way to kind of police boundaries is like mogging, right? Like because again, you can't like put anyone on a locker. You can't like you can't have it out. And and that sounds like a joke, but it's not really like in in actual uh, in real world, real life political coalition building, you butt up against people, right? Like there's real consequences to the way that you oppose people, the way you interact with people when it's completely in like online sub corners, you know, there, there's just none of that. And so the only way to really like kind of uh, police the boundaries of your space is to like just completely humiliate and like be irrational towards people. And I think there's probably still a lot of that in the community. It's it's, it's kind of opened up a little bit because I think more people are, you know, familiar with it. It's a little more mainstream. It's a little, you know, again, Anons are writing for places like Claremont. So there's a little more uh, skin in the game than there used to be. Um, but it's still, I still think there's a lot of that attitude left over. Uh, and understandably so. I mean, a lot of these people have watched movements been sold out and subverted over and over and over yep. and over again. And so I think there's a very healthy skepticism in gatekeeping that probably should continue. But yeah, it does look pretty insufferable from the outside for sure. <laughs> I think it's, I think all of that is, um, it, it, it's like that gatekeeping is so important that that gatekeeping itself has to be done competently. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what I've seen, particularly in, um, in the response to Vivek, like once I totally wrote him off at first, didn't really pay any attention. And then went and started listening to some of the stuff he was saying. And I was like, okay, hold on. This is just like leaving aside any ideological preconceptions. This is genuinely like the most polished public speaker, most gifted mind I've ever seen running for politics. Like if, if Vivek Ramaswamy started a podcast instead of running for president, he could have produced a really fascinating, personable, charismatic, enjoyable podcast about economics and finance and like a tech bro podcast. If you don't think that some of these presidential runs are not media launch platforms, then I don't know yes. what to tell you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, that's the thing. Like yeah. a, a presidential, I said this on the show yesterday, a presidential candidate or, or, or a presidential election um, campaign is maybe tertiarily about running for president. It might even right. be like the fourth or fifth thing on the list. Look the at what Mike Huckabee has been doing. Collection. Yeah. Who? Look at what Mike Huckabee did for, you know, decades. Yes. After. Yeah. The Bloomberg <laughs> election is one of the most interesting ones or the Bloomberg campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking, I was like, he ran for like four months. He had the most like slapped together like campaign that was just sort of mediocre. And he spent a billion dollars on it. And then I realized Six months before he announced his campaign, he started a social media ads analysis uh, company for the for for political campaigns, and that company is the one that managed his campaign. So all they did was just use it as like a data massive data collection, um, and 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 like beta testing different strategies and stuff for marketing data. It was all it was. Yep. All right, uh, super chats. Thank you for coming, man. We've appreciated this. We've got a couple super chats here. Uh, $5 from random username. He says, super chats killed high quality produced content on YouTube. Super chats killed the NRX. Long live the new NRX. Uh, this was, <laughs> this is what he was saying the other day that, uh, you know, originally, like when you came up, you had these well-produced videos that are, are pre-recorded with a script and everything. 
Um, but then everything turned to live streams because live streams are when you can get super chats and that's what yeah. kind of killed the, the, the pre-produced ones. Uh, then we've got uh, Two-Bit Podcast gave us uh, $10 Australian. He said, wouldn't be doing my job as a producer if I didn't take this opportunity to invite Oren on for Vivek Friend or Fed in February. Great job, <laughs> gentlemen. So you have it. There's an invitation uh, for, for you to, to go on that. Are, are you, have you seen oh, the yeah. Friend or Fed? Structure. No, I'm not familiar with the with the. I know I've, I've seen two bit podcasts floating around, but I I'm not familiar with the show. It's very good. It's a it's a it's an interesting concept. You basically take a guy and you debate whether he's a friend or a fed, but it's, uh, really, it's a jumping off point for having a larger conversation about the stuff related to him. So it's a uh, kind of has a, has a little UFC aspect to it. There you go. Chris Putnam, ten dollars. He said, "Have y'all read The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist? If not, highly recommend about the divided brain. It decodes a hell of a lot about our modern Western situations and divisions. Have you read that, Oren? I have not. I'm not familiar with that one. Hmm. Okay. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. And then that is all we have. So this has been good. We're right at an hour. Um, is there anything, uh, anything you'd like to to promote or anything you're working on right now? Uh, no, just, you know, of course, the, you know, the podcast, the show, uh, I do have uh, a book coming out uh, soon, uh, The Total State. Um, I need to get the exact release date, uh, but uh, but it's going to the printer soon. So uh, give people more information with that. But uh, that's pretty much it. All right. Where can people find you? Uh, of course, Oren McIntyre on Twitter, on Gab, uh, YouTube, uh, anywhere, find podcasts or peddled. And of course, uh, over at The Blaze. Right on. Thank you very much, man. Much appreciated coming on, and we'll talk to you next time. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.